0: This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, during the events surrounding Wharton's reunion weekend, celebrating past alumni and their accomplishments, and offering the opportunity to cultivate connections and learn from renowned Wharton professors, this is a Business Radio special presentation of Leadership in Energy. Here are your hosts, Director of the Center for Leadership and Change Management, Professor Mike Yuseem, and Executive Director of the Wharton Leadership Program, Jeff Klein. Welcome, everybody. Special reunion edition of uh, Leadership in Action. That is us on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I am your host, Mike Yuseem. I'm with the Center for Leadership and Change and the McNulty Leadership Program, and sitting right next to me right now is my good friend, the director, the executive director of the McNulty Leadership Program, Jeff Klein. Jeff, great to have you here in the studio. Hey, Mike. How are you? Great. Uh, Jeff, this is a reunion weekend. We know what happens when we graduate, but what exactly happens at a reunion? And you've been back, I think, to your reunion here since you are one of our esteemed MBA graduates. So Uh what's up with reunion
1: Uh, I I think the primary thing that happens is there's a ton of hugging that goes on.
0: (laughs) Very modern.
1: (laughs) Right? There's a lot of, like, making eye contact from across the room, reconnecting, hugs. I mean, I think there's some education going on, too. Uh,
0: A little bit, and uh, probably a lot of comments. You don't look a day older and so on. There's a whole...
1: I haven't haven't been getting that. Are are you getting that? (laughs) I meant to say that, Jeff. That's Uh, that's that's what they tell
0: me, of course. So, anyway, welcome. Um, I want to bring our guest, though, quickly into our dialogue. He's here with us in the studio. Uh, Gopi uh, Khalil, great to have you here
2: with us. You are at your reunion. Thank you, Professor Sim. Great to be back. Hi, Jeff. Nice to meet you. Good to meet you, Gopi.
0: Let me say a word about Gopi, and then we're, uh, we're going to jump right into it. He has one of the most interesting, intriguing titles on his business card. We're going to ask him about that. He is the Chief Evangelist for Brand Marketing at Google. We're going to get him to explain that one, of course. Uh, he has uh, he has a Master's of Business Administration out of our school here, so he's back for his graduation. Uh, he published a, a book. Listen carefully to the title, The Internet to the Inner Net. The Internet to the Inner Net. Five Ways to Reset Your Connection and live a conscious life. So Gopi, uh, really great to have you here. Uh, Just to jump into it here, how did you go from here when you finished up to no less than Google out in Silicon Valley? How did you get from here to there?
2: Well, while graduating, I was pretty clear that I wanted to pursue a career in the technology industry because what uh, really drove me was the intersection of technology and business for greater good. So I left uh, Wharton to join McKinsey in their technology practice in Silicon Valley, and after a few years, I teamed up with uh, somebody from the firm to start a company, and we did two startups over the next uh, six years. Both were acquired, yeah. and I hastened to add modest acquisitions, and then it took some time off, actually, to travel uh, around the world. And in between the two startups, I met up with you, Professor Seeman. and we yeah. went to Kanchenjunga to do the Warden Leadership trek in the Himalayas too.
0: We did, and I just want to mention to listeners: uh, Kanchenjunga, the world's fourth highest mountain. Third highest, after yeah, after so Everest and K2. K2, so third highest. It's on the border of Nepal and India, the eastern end of Nepal. Gopi and I spent a couple, oh, a couple weeks really trying to get into where a kind of a base camp might be located, so we're close in it. Anyway, as we got back to the vehicles, as we're heading back to civilization and flying back home, Kopi, you took out a long list of a hundred things to do in life, and you put a big checkmark: trekking in the Himalayas. I'll never forget that. Yes, so, <laughs> you've got a few more checks, I
2: assume, on your checklist. Yeah, about forty-eight on that list are done now.
0: Really, fifty-two to go. Yes. What What's left
2: among the ones that are left? Yeah. Oh well, to uh, create. A program that could impact a billion people and change their lives. I like it. Which might take about 400 years to accomplish. That's all right.
0: (laughs) When Joseph Wharton provided the naming grant to set up our school, uh, to quote him directly, it was intended to help this business school solve the problems of civilization. So thank you for carrying out that DNA that we all inherit. Let me quickly, though, get over to... This title that I mentioned, uh, you've been at Google now for quite a while, and you are currently the chief evangelist. Let me say it again, chief evangelist for brand marketing at Google. I understand brand marketing. I think I know what chief evangelist is, but fill that one in
2: if you wouldn't mind. Sure, Yep. Yeah. Uh, well, I jokingly tell people my real job is to test the free food and massage program at Google. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that? <laughs> Path, it's passing? <laughs> yeah, so far so good? Yeah, yeah. Somebody has to do that. All right. right. <laughs> no, but in all seriousness, uh, in this role, when I say Chief Evangelist Brand Marketing, I work with the thousand largest brands in the world who are all customers of Google and help <sighs> work with the leadership of those companies to understand how to build their brands on digital. Because if you pick up any one mm-hmm. of the brands, whether it's an auto company or a consumer products company or a financial services company, every single one of their customers are doing something mm-hmm. on the digital platform and provides a great way to connect and engage with them and And, and I help them understand how to transition to this new world and demystify <laughs> the whole aspect of building their brand. So
0: just one final question for sure. me to get uh, Jeff uh, pulled in here. How's it going? <laughs> in... Doing what you just said. Oh, it is going yeah.
2: extremely well. Yeah. And uh, the pace at which things are moving, changing is like stunning. I could not have anticipated <laughs> this when I graduated. It is uh, astonishing to be part of it and just watch everything that is unfolding.
1: Yeah. I, I'd be curious, what, uh, as you work with these leading brands, what are some of the common questions they have about how to establish their, their presence in a digital world? In a digital world,
2: well, the primarily one, the, the the most important one is how can we find the consumers or customers who are interested in our products and services, sure. and how can we have a meaningful, engaging conversation with them without, uh, with without being intrusive into their life. So, being of service, I think, is the greatest message that uh, I pass on to them. Like, find who's really interested in Uh your product or service, in the window when they most care about. So, for example, if somebody's buying a home during that six-month window post-buying, they're interested in certain home improvement services Mm -hmm. or other things around the house. And after that, that interest wanes off and they might move on to something else. Maybe they're having a baby and a completely different set of products and services enter their awareness set when they're deeply interested. in. So how do you find the right person in each stage? Or like, this is graduation week? And the graduates and families who are graduating have interest in certain things from housing to, to to bed and furniture and the moving services that they care deeply about. Sure. So how do you find them and have a conversation with them during the window is really the thing that most of these CMOs are trying to understand.
1: Yeah. And w- was this kind of a role in the the relationship that you're able to develop with these brands? Um, was this a a response to customer inquiries for Google? Was this something that Google said, you know what, we need to be out there kind of leading the way and shaping the conversation?
2: I would say more of the latter. I pretty much created this role. I asked for it. I felt that there would be a need for it. I did see it coming up front. And uh, luckily, I work in an organization where they give you a lot of freedom to shape uh, your career and what you want to do. So I asked for this role
1: was this a role within Google that um, you were building towards or was this something that was really a a change in direction?
2: No, I would say this was building towards (laughs) as each wave of marketing services have been built on top of digital. Uh, In the early days, it was simply like if you're interested in an air ticket quickly, a company could offer you Mm -hmm. an air ticket to Hawaii or hotel rooms. But now more sophisticated way of connecting The brand itself to the consumer is popping up, and this is an emergence of how the whole world of digital is emerging. Actually, it's a a sign of how uh, consumers at large Mm -hmm. are spending more and more time on the digital platform in (laughs) every aspect of their life, from finding information to finding a location, the nearest coffee shop or yoga store, yoga studio they want to get to, Mm -hmm. to using it for what our CEO calls to live, learn, and love every aspect of their life.
0: Gopi, mm. uh, just picking up on what you've been doing at Google and having you think for a minute to use an academic social science phrase as a very well-placed observer or even academics sometimes refer to somebody who's kind of on the inside being a participant observer. But I want to stress the observer part. Uh, Enormous interest out there. Uh, You know this, of course. Uh, Jeff and I do extremely well as well. Enormous interest in how Google operates. What's the rhythm, the the tempo? How do people make decisions? And apropos the title of this program here, Leadership in Action, what is it – I'll make it personal to begin with here. What has it taken for you within Google to get the title, uh, to move heaven and earth – and make things happen. So underlying that, of course, is a question about what does it take to lead in your own experience at Google?
2: Yeah, I think the most fundamental thing that drives the company and everybody works there is a sense of mission, a sense of purpose that comes from the original mission statement that the two founders who were young PhDs dropouts out of Stanford wrote, which is to organize all of the world's information, make it universally accessible and useful. And it might seem like a very profound statement to make, but buried in that is a really deep sense of mission that drives the entire uh, company and all its purpose around it. And as part of it, there are certain core principles that everyone believes in and works by, some of them being that innovation is at the core of everything we do, and it's everyone's job, not just one department off on the side, that every single Mm -hmm. person is responsible Mm -hmm. for innovation. Second is the most important person is the user or what in our parlance is the consumer, the people, the audience who use our products and do everything putting their interest first even above the financial interests of the company itself. And the third one is think in terms of 10x improvements make, how can we make something 10 times faster, 10 times uh, more efficient, 10 times cheaper, etc. And then the The fourth one would be a general operating principle that fast is always better than slow. Mm -hmm. You don't have to get it perfect, but move quickly and uh, get our consumers to use things and give us feedback, and we'll keep iterating from that point on.
0: Slow, uh, a a, a very pragmatic question on slow versus fast. Fast is better than slow. (laughs) Uh, Fast over slow, 10x improvement. How does the company bring those ideas to the, to life, kind of off the statement that's on the wall.
2: Sure, yeah. I mean, just let's look at a product everybody uses. Like humans navigate around the world. We get it from place A to place B. And the way we used to do it, getting lost, trying to ask questions, all that changed when the entire world map has been taken and put into your pocket in the form of a smartphone. And the first version of it didn't work that perfectly. It was a two-dimensional map that you had to... Have some sort of spatial imagination to navigate (laughs) your way. And uh, all these uh, years, they constantly keep iterating. Every few weeks, a new version of some aspect of maps is rolled out. And how we navigate around the world has continued to become easier, simpler, more useful, including last Wednesday, we announced something. I mean, this is like fast forward to a week ago, where when you hold a phone in a location, the phone's camera looks at where you're standing and then overlays the image you're looking at, mm. the building or the street, onto your Google Maps. So now, spatially, you know exactly where you stand. You don't need to turn around and trying to figure out what is north, what is south, using so that level of capability. And this is what I mean by constant improvement. The very first version of Maps couldn't do any of that.
0: By the way, before we lose that point, can I update my iPhone right now? Is that ready to go? If I go I can update Google Maps on my iPhone and we're, we're set yep, with the that. latest
2: worst it should have automatically happened <laughs> yeah,
0: fantastic let me just remind everybody that you are listening to a special edition of leadership in action this is Wharton reunion radio business radio Sirius XM channel 111 I'm your host I'm with my good friend here and colleague Jeff Klein and we're talking with Gopi Khalil the chief evangelist of brand marketing at Google
1: sure uh, we're talking a lot about how Google's relationship with um with big brands with customers has changed. Um how has the digital world impacted the way the way Google works? Um what's the employee experience and has that changed over time?
2: Well, Google's entire uh experience is built around digital from yeah. the ground up from day 1. So yeah, as as the uh, you know, products and services. And what really drives us is looking at how consumers are changing their mm-hmm. behavior and approach and what their expectations are, which constantly get reset. So here's a tiny example. Uh, to begin with, I always remind people, I was telling all my friends here at Reunion, that when I graduated, there was Google was not even born then. Right. It, it happened the same year, but subsequently a few months after we graduated. Was no coincidence, l- right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it was years later, um, in only as recent as 2006, when the first smartphone was created. Sure. Right, 2006. And everything that has happened just on the palm of your hand through, through the smartphone mobile devices has been pretty astonishing. It's become the world's largest deployed technology ever. Yeah. And uh, with that, we do everything from navigator way around the world using it as a remote control to the world where you click on it and the car shows up at your door to ordering your bread and milk and and to listen to music or Mm -hmm. take pictures. Incredible. So it is really that pace at which consumers have adopted that drives the DNA and rhythm of how we work and respond to it. Uh, And so we're constantly watching it Mm -hmm. and trying to stay ahead of it in terms of both innovation and giving those consumers the services they need.
1: Yeah. Well, and, and given that description, I'd I uh, I'd love to talk with you about the book um, and what led you to write about resetting the connection and, and living a conscious life. Yeah.
2: So in the midst of all, I have personally maintained that the most important technology is still the one that is within us, our body, our breath, our brain, our consciousness. Mm-hmm. Because everything we experience in life has to be filtered by what I call your inner, net, your inner technology. And everything that we create in life whether it's an incredible uh, uh, concept or theory that Professor Raseem writes, or whether it's an amazing talk on leadership you give, Jeff, or whether it's the next great product I designed with my colleagues, mm-hmm. all of that has to come from our inner technology. Mm-hmm. And therefore, the quality of our life is determined by the quality of how we keep our inner technology, our body, brain, mind, etc in a state of peak performance. The challenges with all of the digital technology surrounding us with the rings and the pings and the tweets It constantly fragments our attention and focus and energy in many directions. So there's a real need at this point in life where humans are asking, how do I define or redefine my relationship with these technologies so that I can show up in life, be able to use these technologies effectively, and still keep my Internet in a state of peak performance? And, And by a cultural accident, I was born and raised in India, so early on I was exposed to what I call ancient wisdom technology, so traditions like yoga, meditation, etc., mm-hmm. that took care of my body, mind, spirit. And then by an accident of the more recent education I had mm-hmm. around business and technology and engineering, I was working now in the world of digital technology, and I was personally trying to see how do I make the two intersect and work effectively in my own life. And it's thinking and experimenting with all of that for the last 10 years that led to the book and, and
1: I, I think you've really captured one of the um, one of the core challenges of uh, you know of, of living in today's age right now, right? Which is how do I stay as president at present as I can with who I am, as well as present with a world that I'm always connected with? Um, what's a first step someone could take towards bringing those worlds together or managing them more intentionally?
2: Well, first of all, it might be just you know uh, separating the two when that when there is a need to, yeah. And, uh, you know, if we were to use the expedition trek that I did with uh, uh, Professor Rasim uh, when we were in the Himalayas, you know, during those 10 days, you had to be present to the environment and everything else mm-hmm. around you and to the people because it is physically demanding and challenging. And thankfully, none of the phones, et cetera, did not really work there. We, I think we might have had one satellite phone in the group. So it forces us to unplug, be out there in really uh, – Challenging nature, I would call up mm-hmm. high in rarefied air, climbing up uh, the lower slopes of this pretty tall mountain, with depending on the others in the group and uh, and and also the porters, etc. And we had okay. to be extremely present to it. So that's one way by which you can occasionally actually take a step back from all of this and be totally plugged in. But even in the midst of our, you uh, know busy life in the middle of a corporate setting. There Mm -hmm. are many ways by which you need to carve out time. There might be some times you're fully immersed in the technology. At other times, you might have to step back. Like you could walk into a meeting and say, I'm going to shut my laptop up, put the phone away, and just talk to the person, listen to what is being presented. Or I have one ritual of mine is every Monday at 5.30, I stop and I teach a yoga class on the Google campus. Mm. And that's non-negotiable. And for 12 years, I haven't missed a single class unless I'm traveling in another country. So it is, you have to carve out windows yeah. like that in a 24 hour cycle in order to make sure that you're nurturing your internet, even as much as you're effectively using the internet at other times to get your work done.
3: Okay.
0: Gopi, let's stay on that for a minute more. Uh, pick it up on the fact that you were featured maybe a, three or four months ago in an article in the New York Times about the topic we've been referencing here. And you've been playing a role not only in helping yourself become focused on your inner world along with the internet, but others as well. So talk, if you wouldn't mind, about how you take some of these ideas, yoga and well beyond, and help others become more mindful.
2: Well, I I feel I received a great gift from the teachers I studied with and practiced with growing up in India and subsequently. And... um, And in the traditions in which they teach, they say the greatest way by which you can say thank you is to pass it on to others. Uh, But I want to be careful about claiming that I'm any kind of teacher with extraordinary wisdom. Mm -hmm. I'm not. I'm just still continue to be a student and a beginner in learning. And in these workshops and seminars that you refer to, this one in the New York Times referred to the program I taught at uh, Esalen Mm -hmm. in the Big Sur Coast in California. And It's really coming together with others who are on a similar journey and experimenting and exploring with them. I share some of the things that have worked for me. I talk to them about the things that don't work where I've failed. And uh, they, in turn, share their own experiences around it. And I would say collectively we are learning and moving forward. Mm -hmm. But it's really a support group that kicks in at that point.
0: So uh, staying on that for uh, just sort of one more swing at it, on working now back into the work setting, but bringing that other part of your life into into the work setting. Yeah. Lots of phrases that we kick around to kind of capture the need to integrate work and life, and yeah. need good balance. When you're at work at Google, uh, just think about your evangelical work and bringing brands, um, helping those brands working with you to do what they want to do on uh, through Google. What parts of what we've just described, you've just described, do you tend to carry into your workplace actively in some way that they inform what you're doing?
2: Yeah, I would say all the time because I don't try to compartmentalize my work life and my other life. I say there is only yeah. one life because the same whole person shows up at work, and uh, it is that integrated human that is really showing up in as a human in the personal life as well as in the professional life. So, thankfully, again, I work in a culture, a workplace culture, which encourages that in- integration. Mm-hmm. So the many ways by which I might bring elements of one into the other is I start meetings with my team with a small meditation session that helps everyone kind of ground and put a separation between whatever frenzied thing they were dealing with. I've had clients, I've let them out in between to take breaks and say, let's go outside and do a short yoga session before we come back mm. and talk about data measurement and strategy. So we build all of these things into, um, yeah, the workplace. And again, like I said, if you just look at the, the yoga program that I created at Google called Yoglers, it's a yoga program for Googlers. We have 330 classes a week uh, at Google, which is the largest oh. yoga program in the world. But that many opportunities now exist for colleagues to go take a break and practice. So it all happens in the context of your work day, so that there are time to pause Go engage with it, reconnect, reset, and then come back and do a great job with whatever you're trying, whatever problem you're trying to solve.
0: Gopi, we've got a couple of minutes here, sure. and one quick question for me, and one from Jeff, and then we're going to uh, wrap up. Okay,
2: um, this is so great. You should ask for another extra thirty minutes. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> I wish we had it. This has been fascinating.
0: Yeah. Uh, great to hear about what you've been doing and where you're coming from and how you got there. Let's take it into the future. How about five, maybe ten years out? What are you going to be doing in five or ten years?
2: Um, I am hesitant to even predict because if I would look five years ago and you asked me, "Is this what you're <laughs> doing?" I could not have predicted. I couldn't. My, it had hit. It is well past the limits of my imagination yeah. mm-hmm. in the way things have changed and what is emerging around the world. So I do not know. But in broad strokes, I hope it will be around the following three things. One is to use all of the technology and creativity that humans manifest and uh, through the world of organization and business see if it can serve the greater good, have a positive impact on, on the world. And the second is to, uh, that are some way be involved and there is some big problem out there that is yet to be solved. So even something as simple as a billion people today are vision impaired and just eyeglasses will fix the problem. But creatively, we haven't come up with a scalable way by which to do it. So some, there, there, that's one of hundreds of problem sexes, and I hope I will get to work on some of them as well. And the third is just my own personal growth, development, and see during the limited time I have on the planet, how can I live and work and play as my highest self.
0: Terrific.
1: So... Mike asked the forward-looking question, so I'll, I'll ask the reflective question. Okay. You're, you're back here. You're at Reunion, yeah. back on a campus where you earned an MBA, and I know that one of the things you talk about in the book is uh, the importance of living with gratitude. Yeah. So as, as you're back here on campus, what are you feeling grateful about?
2: Well, I'm grateful for the simple fact that I got an opportunity to go to this amazing school and the things I learned. But more than what I learned in a book or a classroom, I think it's the relationships that i built both with my classmates, with a larger group of alumni, and with the professors that have held me in sure. in good stead. And it's come back over and over again to serve me in many different ways. And I'm just you know, grateful that you know, I got out to go and experiment in this world, in this case in the Silicon Valley area with all of the emerging technologies. But it's quite a privilege to be able to do all of those things professionally yeah. um, that have led to both personal f- professional fulfillment and a feeling that there's some contribution we've all been able to make that's great we're
1: we're grateful you could spend the time today too. thank you Jeff. thank you gopi thank you Professor.
2: so
0: gopi by way of uh, bringing it to a final close here for people who like to read your book they know where to go for that but to learn more about you directly how would they take that on
2: well, my website, www.kalil.com is one place. I'm also pretty active on social media. And uh, a lot of my talks are on YouTube, so you can go watch that there. And I always joke and say it's very simple. Go to this uh, little search engine called google.com and type in <laughs> 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 <Yeah>. my name <laughs> and you'll I'll, be directed uh, to uh, everything uh, you need. <laughs> the world is at our
0: fingertips. Uh, Gopi, thank you for joining us today. We really appreciate your being here. Thank you,
2: Professor Asim. Thank you, Jeff.
0: Hang on, everybody. It's a brief break. Don't go away. In our next half an hour, we're going to be talking with another Wharton graduate who is back here for a Union Weekend who says she knows a lot about the concept of reinventing yourself. So that is us. I'm Mike Yusim with Jeff Klein. This is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 111. Celebrating Wharton's Reunion Weekend. You're listening to a special presentation of Leadership in Action from the Business Radio Studio on the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. Here again are Jeff Klein and Professor Mike Yuseen. Listen to all those cheering folks right outside our window here, Jeff. Uh, this is uh, they follow you
1: everywhere. Don't they, Mike?
0: <laughs> uh, well, I think they actually have an interest in Sirius XM Radio, which is what we're doing right now. This is a special edition of our weekly program, Jeff, Leadership in Action. Uh, Speaking of Jeff, Jeff Klein here is the Executive Director of the McNulty Leadership Program. I'm Mike Hussein, and I'm with that program as well. And we have the privilege now of meeting here in the studio with one of our very own graduates. She's back for her reunion, Claire Labrinerie, who is Head of Global Distribution of Sky Harbor Capital Management. I'm going to say, Claire, great to have you in the studio. I'm going to say a couple other things about your background, and then I'll have you say a couple words about Sky Harbor Capital Management. You've got quite a resume in in the places as a finance industry executive you have worked. You've been with PepsiCo, GE Capital, Adelphia Communication, J.P. Morgan. Before that, uh, here for your MBA, and then prior to that, you've completed a degree at Stanford University. So, Claire, welcome to the program. Great to have you here.
3: Thanks for having me.
0: So just a couple words about Sky Harbor Capital Management and then, of course, what you do yourself. And we're going to ask all about your leadership therein.
3: Okay, great. Sky Harbor is uh, an asset management company focused on leveraged credit and high-yield bonds in particular. We have two flagship strategies, um, which together comprise almost $6 billion in assets under management. And um, the founders of the company have worked together in the high-yield industry for about 30 years.
0: hmm your clients are the big, the big guys, the big institutions.
3: Yes, primarily institutional investors. Although we do have some um, limited partnerships in the United States, and we have about three billion of our assets are located in a UCITS fund in Luxembourg, which means we do get some retail.
0: And say what you actually do within all the above.
3: So what I started at Sky Harbor mm. in two thousand thirteen, early thirteen, as uh, the chief operating officer. And um, that we're a very flat organization, about 27 people total, and there's really just the founders are in charge. Um, so everybody's very transversal. And after about three years in the COO role, I switched to head of global distribution. At Sky, what that means is uh, really working on strategies and prioritizing entry into new markets and mm-hmm. identifying investors and working quite closely with uh, third-party marketing teams overseas.
0: Claire, you have all the fun. (laughs) Question on going back one notch in your career. As Chief Operating Officer, uh, Jeff and I love to hear more from that perch about what it takes to function in the C-suite or to take on a role where you have to do everything. So as you became COO, what was the learning curve like and what did it require you didn't do before?
3: Right, so I actually probably need to back up for that. I had um, I was working nonstop um, out of business school on a full-time basis until I had my third child in 2001, and then I had another girl after that, so I've got four girls. So by 2001, I was no longer working full-time anymore, and I spent about eight years, nine years working part-time, and it took a while to get back into the workforce, and I did that through Pepsi. Um, I met the founder of the company... Um, in a social situation and she listened to a little bit of my background and she said i'm looking for a chief operating officer and what i need is probably a single parent probably of multiple <laughs> kids someone with a little gray hair of which i have a lot um she goes really a mom is a chief operating officer <laughs> i'd had some um experience working for uh, a nonprofit company and that was another feature that she said was pretty important because people who have worked in nonprofit, they don't need entourages. They can roll up their sleeves. They do the work. They can send their own faxes. So to answer your question, I had really nothing that would have equipped me in a traditional sense for a chief operating executive um, or a chief executive role in any way. Oh, though, Clara, no C- oh, level.
0: I do want to turn that upside down as I turn the baton over to Jeff here. Uh, Jeff, I don't think we've ever appreciated but may it be a matter of record that a great foundation to become a chief operating officer is to be a mom. So exactly. <laughs> write write that down.
1: Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, well, it. We talk about leadership a lot being um, this process of muddling through, right? And, you know, kind of understanding the environment that we're a part of, dealing with the issues as they come up. Uh, I can think of no person more qualified than a mom. Yeah, well,
3: (laughs) yeah, that's kind. I mean, you do actually learn to, you know, you have to put things into perspective, prioritize, you know, less drama is better, um, roll with the punches a little bit. So, yeah.
1: So, as you're, uh, I'm curious. As you're back here on campus, um, and you you have an MBA here, you did work in international relations both at, at Columbia and Stanford. And so, um, if we if we were able to go back and and talk to Claire, maybe pre undergraduate days, do you think you'd say to us twenty, thirty, whatever years from now? I will probably be the global head of distribution, having just rolled out of being a chief operating officer. No,
3: not in the least. And that, you know, that's um, actually right before I went to Stanford. The um, the admissions officer spoke to our whole entering class, and the one word out of that whole speech, which is just lost in a lot of dead brain cells, was serendipity. And I think that's really that describes my career perfectly. Um, You know, stay relevant if you Mm -hmm. can, keep learning, but luck is going to play a really big role. Right. Um, w- at Pre-Stanford, I thought that I would go into maybe the Foreign Service, something international, mm-hmm. um, but I really had no great idea of what that would be.
1: Mm-hmm. And what was appealing to you about those kinds of roles, Foreign Service, international work?
3: I love to travel. Okay. Um, I studied French and German growing up and throughout high school, and then continued those languages through college. Languages were, for some reason, pretty easy. Later on, I learned Spanish. Mm-hmm. So. Um, yeah, you know, I I liked international, I liked travel. It was no more mature thinking than that. It was, I should pick something that will get me overseas a lot.
1: Uh, And to what degree, you know, not not just within your role at at Sky Harbor, but across the um, variety of experiences you've had at Pepsi, at GE, at Adelphia, to to what degree were you able to, you know, kind of keep that love and that passion for travel and, and language and culture alive?
3: Well, um... Yeah, good question. You know, some of my jobs did involve extensive travel. Um, when I was working for J.P. Morgan, that was uh, that was the first job where I was actually posted overseas. Mm. I spent two years in Mexico City doing new business development there, so that was um, pretty directly overseas. Adelphia, Delphi, I worked with uh, their international group doing acquisitions of cable franchises throughout Latin America. And in the course of doing that, I pretty much hit every Latin American country talking to small operators and kind of compiling licenses. Um, GE Capital, that was purely international. It was a lot of travel, buying bad debt from all over the world. Hmm. And then there was the long period when I was just a mom. And so mm-hmm. then I had to be satisfied with just travel from time to time.
2: Yeah, well, um, travel travel yeah. becomes different. It's, yeah, it's sort it, of from here, a little the soccer field a or the, work, the school yes. play, right? <laughs> That's right. That's right. Uh,
0: like, Claire, I can't resist asking... Uh, an earlier question i had now in reverse so as coo their chief operating officer and picking up on an academic argument that our private life informs our public life but it also goes the other way around so what did you take out of your role as chief operating officer that you've ended up using at home
3: that's a great question Mm -hmm. um you know, I, it's probably a self-reinforcing thing. I was hired a little bit because people thought that I could put out fires and multitask. <laughs> and I think what I've learned is that I can be much calmer at home. I can take a breath and the same professional qualities you need so that you're not just erupting in the workplace, that you listen very carefully and you think about what the right response is, that you're nuanced in your response you can bring that into the house as opposed to just thinking I'm the boss. I'm the one and only boss of Mm -hmm. all of these kids. You know, that's not realistic. You need to listen. So it's, it's helped a little bit in that way.
0: Claire reminds me of a moment that we uh, witnessed Jeff and I witnessed at one of our annual leadership conferences we do every year here. We had the, at that time, the deputy U S attorney general here as a speaker she had a huge job. Think about the current deputy attorney general in Washington and all that he's going through. Anyway, the speaker, then deputy attorney general, said that uh, day's incredibly tense, fast moving, and it was really great to get home. And she had, I think, three children. And quick response was that she came in kind of all frazzled and stressed out kids said, "Hey, mom. Uh, <laughs> what's
3: for dinner? <laughs> like, what's up? Yeah, <laughs> can you help
0: me with my homework? And don't tell me about your problems with the United States. We, we got a, we got a family. So, but there have been it, a few moments like that.
3: Uh, completely, yeah. It's a reality check. You're just totally. you know, your mom,
0: uh, Claire. Just to shift ground a little bit here, uh, a lot of our listeners are not in financial services, but I think they're eager to learn what they can from people who have led whatever the area." But speaking of financial services, maybe your days now, but going back to GE Capital or JPMorgan Chase, how would you capture maybe in a couple sentences what it takes to be effective, whatever the role you have in helping other people get their job done?
3: Yeah, another good question. Um, you know, I think it's it, it has to be customized. It has to be bespoke. Everybody needs something different. Some people want to be left alone and very hands-off. Other people really want to be able to iterate and go through a discussion about it. So I'd say I tend to be more hands-off. I wait and watch and let people come to me, and I'm I'm actually trying to work on that because – If you're hands-off too much, you Mm -hmm. let people write the narrative about you. So I do try to get out and talk or just walk around um, listening, seeing if anybody has any questions, not just stay holed up in my office um, Mm -hmm. and let people come to me.
0: We had a guest on the show a couple months ago who used the phrase eyes on but hands-off. Yeah. You're kind of keeping –
3: I think that's a that's a fair way to put yeah. it. Um, m- you know, we're all we're all mature, and most of the organizations I've worked with are very flat. I've never really been in a very hierarchical organization, and um, even you'd say J.P. Morgan is pretty hierarchical. But I was in the Mexico City team, which was again pretty flat, and we're all pretty much the same level. So it's really more about listening and yep. seeing whether anybody. You know, we're working as a team. Does anybody need any support?
0: Claire, I need to remind our listeners that they are tuned in to Reunion Radio, Wharton School Leadership in Action. Uh, that's us, Sirius XM, Channel 111. That's what you've got there on your dial. I'm your host, Mike Hussein. I'm with Jeff Klein, and we're talking with Claire LeBrunnery, head of global distribution for Sky Harbor Capital Management.
1: So, Claire, earlier uh, when you were you were kind of referencing mm-hmm. your career, you are talking about the role of serendipity. Um, and and the the set of opportunities that have been there, um, it, it also strikes me as as I just look across your resume that um, there's a degree of courage that's involved too as you move from from role to role and situation to situation which feel really new. Um, what supports yeah. that courage?
3: Yeah, I uh, okay. I'm not going to have a great answer for that because it doesn't feel courageous as much as it feels like you're looking at a couple of opportunities. Mm-hmm. And you think, and you think, and then I get out and I run, or I get you know some mm-hmm. uh, fresh air, and then the answer comes. And the, the classic um, example of that in mine, it, it felt like it took a lot of courage, um, but it was the move to Sky Harbor. And I'd been working for a nonprofit for about a year. It was part of this sort of long, slow transition after the crash of 2008 to get back into the workforce. And I was really not that happy at the nonprofit. I knew I needed to make a move. And I had lined up job offers at two or three other nonprofits. Um, Mm -hmm. Based on the last year, you'd been good as a fundraiser. You can keep on doing that. And this job at Sky Harbor came out at me, and I thought to myself, I've never been a chief operating officer. This is going to be a big fail. I will not be able to do this. And I spent probably a good week thinking I could take this job, which sounds like a great, interesting opportunity at Sky Harbor, but I'm probably going to fail Or I could do something that I know I could do, but it's really not as good a trajectory. And, you know, I thought and I thought and I finally just sort of jumped and said, Mm -hmm. you know, let's try Sky Harbor. I think, um, and I do have a major fail that was born out of doing, taking a job that, you know, I was trying to learn multiple new things at once. And that, that was sort of destined to fail. And at least with Sky Harbor what I saw was there were some basic skills that I'd already done it was mm-hmm. maybe a new industry for me but I could do the skills I had the I had the knowledge to do it mm-hmm. you know it doesn't work out so well when you go and you try to do um you know a classic example was after working at Pepsi for a couple of years and something I understood well it was a contract job again getting back into the workforce I took the not-so-brilliant decision to go join their trading team, which would have been a permanent job had it worked out. And I was trying to learn trading for the first time in my life and hedging uh, commodities. Mm -hmm. Um, So trading derivatives and commodities, I'd never done either. And I thought, you you know, lesson now that I look back, don't take on too much. If you're trying to learn two or three new things at the same time as starting on a new team, it's not going to work. And after about three months, I knew I wasn't going to last there. And I jumped pretty quickly um, to the nonprofit. Yeah. Before they could fire me, I left. You know, so that's probably my biggest fail in terms of a job.
1: Um, Maybe to to – just follow up on that uh, a little yeah. bit, I mean I think we talk a lot about the role of stretch experiences mm-hmm. um, within leadership development, and part of um, part of the joy of of our work here and working with students um, is we get to sit back and kind of create stretch experiences, put people in new environments, you know new teams, teach them new skills. What is it for you as you would enter one of these new roles and and you're acknowledging there are new things that Mm -hmm. that you're going to have to learn to be successful? um, You know, where is it that you would either go for support or for guidance um, or for uh, access to to new or different kinds of information?
3: Well. I've, one of the first things I do is look for maybe a mentor, mm-hmm. um, you know, just, and that's not as magical as it sounds. It's just finding a couple of people that you have a good rapport with and you can and this go is ask typically them with, some, like within the organization, within the organization okay. yeah. And, you know, who can I sit down and talk to, you know, over a coffee or over lunch and mm-hmm. say, you know, how does this work? And, you know, how do I relate to these people and work with this team or that team? That's been invaluable in some of the bigger companies is finding a couple people that make it feel smaller Mm -hmm. and more digestible. Mm
1: -hmm. Now, long-running debate on this show about mentors, um, and that is, do you ever acknowledge to the person um, who is serving in that role that they are a mentor, or is it something that's left kind of unspoken?
3: For me, it's been unspoken. What's the debate? Uh, Just whether or
1: not – some will say, Mm -hmm. you know, I – I really like to be explicit so that my mentor knows the ways in which I rely on him or her. And others say, the moment I say that, it changes the relationship, right, and it yeah. it becomes formal in a way that I that I'm not seeking, and so I don't think there's a right answer to this, but it's been just an ongoing curiosity for me yeah. over these years.
3: Well, for me, it's been informal, but I have heard that some larger companies do have a formal process where they assign you a mentor. Right, um, right, and that's it's even, not a bad idea.
1: Yeah the the structured mentoring programs are interesting um, in that they create a lot of access for folks, though it. Um, it's a different way to develop relationships, I think, right? This yeah. is, um, you know, more in the spirit of, and I, I kind of have my own funny story about this, um, more in the spirit of a someone that you develop a relationship with, but then you want them to know, hey, You're serving in this kind of role. And I actually have a mentor here at at Penn who, for years and years, I would ask him for advice. And he would say to me, um, well, if I was your mentor, the way I would answer that question is – and then would go on. And it was – I kind of chuckled and then I forgot about it for a while. And then I heard him say it in a time where I was particularly stressed out. And I just stopped and I said, okay – clearly you are my mentor right well, it makes so we you think can not right? <laughs> yeah, we, can, yeah. we can do away with the preamble here and let's just yeah. get to the advice um, yeah. but for him I think that became significant um yeah. and I noticed he became more proactive after that yeah and so it, it's just one of these ongoing kind of intellectual debates I've been having with with guests and myself
3: yeah I will say it's sky Harbor um you know moving into the new role that was essentially just a mom role what they did do that was terrific was you know I was given one of the principals of the company, a young guy who'd worked with the founders for about 10 years on the investing side. Mm -hmm. And he let me spend about two weeks just sort of reading and talking and learning what everybody was doing. And then he said, you know what? At three o'clock every day, we're going to come in. You're going to just sit here and go through what I'm working on every day. And we probably did that for six months. And, you know, you'd have personal conversations, a lot of professional conversations. You'd actually do tasks. So Mm -hmm. I ended up really learning that job where there wasn't a formal training program, but that was about as formal as it could get. And, you know, I would say he's probably one of the mentors in my company now. That's super. super helpful.
0: Mike. Clara, a term comes to mind, we actually use it at the top of the hour as we got going, reinvention. So yeah. just reflecting on what you've said, it's pretty obvious you've had to reinvent yourself or you have reinvented yourself yeah. a couple times. So take yeah. one of those times. Uh, how did you do it? Why did you do it? And what? What happened during that moment of reinvention?
3: Yeah. Um, you know, so if you look at my bio, I've had a lot of different jobs. Usually finance is the common theme, but a lot of different functions in finance. And, you know, the other the other backdrop to that is that, you know, jobs are changing so frequently. And the skills that you need for the job are really different. And, you know, I guess one, I'd say I've been doing corporate banking straight out of Wharton. I'd gone to work. Um, I was the manager of corporate finance for the U.S. division of Sumitomo Trust. And, you know, it was it was very, even though it was a Japanese bank, it was very U.S.-based, and I'd always wanted to do international. And I started networking a little bit to see how I could make the transition to international, get into emerging markets, and I noticed that I was going to need Spanish. So I started right. learning on my own Spanish. And I got to the point where I was semi-conversational, and then my interviews picked up, and I ended up getting the job on the Mexico desk at JPMorgan Chase um, based on the international experience I'd had pre-Wharton and the banking experience I had at Sumitomo Trust and the fact that I had taught myself Spanish, at least a semi-functional Spanish.
0: That's great. Good example. We're almost out of time, and I'm going to make it very personal here in a, a final couple of minutes with you. If we look out the window Right behind where I'm sitting, there are a whole lot of people who are on the verge of graduation. It's going to happen tomorrow or Monday. And if uh, Jeff and I, we did graduate a couple years ago, but if we were about to graduate, with the benefit of looking back on reinvention and what you've done and the international and all that, give us a couple of lines of advice. We're all ears
3: Yeah, uh, you know, I don't know that I'm the best person to be giving advice because serendipity has played such a role, but I'd say, you know, stay prepared, um, keep learning, um, kind of look a few steps ahead, and try not to take it super seriously. I mean, especially if you're going into finance, there's going to be so many changes, and take a deep breath and sort of look ahead and say, you know what, if I'm not going on a straight upward trajectory, it's okay. Enjoy life a little bit. Yep,
0: great.
1: So, as you walk around campus and um, reconnect with classmates and everything else, what do you, I have a two part question for you um, about the role that education played so looking back both your time here at Wharton, other universities, what are you really grateful for um, in terms of the the knowledge skills that that education gave you, and then what do you wish you had learned? Um, that maybe you had to wait until later to figure out?
0: Um, Besides Spanish. (laughs) (laughs) That's true.
3: Okay, let me branch out. Um, You know, I'm really grateful for the friends I made here. And I probably, you know, I spent a fair amount of time off campus and working overseas while I was here. So I have fewer than the typical Wharton person might have made. But... I have a dozen good friends that I really value. I enjoy spending time with them and they're people that I can call and connect mm-hmm. with. so that's terrific. It's kind of trite, but it's the people and then um, you know on a simpler on a simpler front, you know just the ability to sort of um, apply you know I guess a framework, um, even graphing you know to be able to flowchart the mm-hmm. businesses and the sort of common sense decisions um, to be able to do that in the I've taken that through every single job I have
1: fantastic so and and that's um uh that's reassuring for us to hear as educators and instructors because we spend a lot of time on those frameworks so to to know that they're out there and and, being 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 used being applied
0: claire great to have you on the program and if somebody wants to learn a little bit more about you or sky harbor capital management where would they go
3: Sky Harbor Capital, Capital Management has a website, and also we have Sky Harbor Global Funds, and I'm on LinkedIn.
0: All right. Fantastic. Thank you for being in the studio with us. Appreciate you coming back for your reunion. And, Claire, our custom is to, for Jeff and myself to take uh, literally about two minutes here, Jeff, to reflect on what we've heard, what we want to hang on to, the after-action review.
1: All right. Well, you know, I, <laughs> I I think there's some commonality in these conversations that we've had, right, about – both about what's happening in the external world and how that connects to what's happening internally for you. And so when I when I think about Gopi and the conversation we had with him exactly. and the role that things like yoga and meditation and the ancient wisdoms, as he described them, play um, in his strategies to stay grounded in a very fast world, um, <clears throat> you know, I, I I think that reinforces a conversation that we are frequently having here. Um, when I think about the conversation that we're just wrapping up with Claire, I mean, there's there's something that's similar to that, right? It's about how do you stay connected to the world, be open to the kinds of opportunities um, that become available, um, you know, use the same kind of, of personal space to make a decision, right? And yeah. in Claire's case, she <coughs> talked about, you know, I'll go for a run. And then, you know, towards the end of that run, a decision becomes more clear, um, but also, you know, using the family, using um, the network of friends, using uh, you know the locations that we're in to really serve um, as that grounding force in a fast-paced world.
0: Great point, Jeff. And uh, I guess great minds think alike on this one. I had the same actually the notes right in here in front of me. You can't uh, you can't copy on the exam. Uh, <laughs> okay, well I'll give you full credit. So uh, I'm just saying what Jeff told me to say on. Work and family, or who you are and friends, both vital. It's who it is who we are. Yeah. It's, it's work and it's family, and the extent that we can get them to work together in some way, and one informing the other. We tend to use the word balance, but I think that under underappreciates uh, what you can do taking from one realm and helping, it, helping you inform your other realm. I think the other notable thing from Claire in particular was the importance of periodic reinvention. Really rethinking who you are. The world's changing. we got to make a few changes along the way. And then back to Gopi, who was chief evangelist for brand marketing at Google, Gopi Khalil. He said uh, 10x improvement is what he's doing, is what Google does. So be ambitious. What do you think? We're okay? I think so. All right. Listen, everybody, we're going to sign off here. Appreciate your joining us. Want to just, uh, in particular, thank our producer Patty Hall, our sound engineer Dion Simpkins. I am Mike Usame. I'm with Jeff Klein, and of course, you have been listening to Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School Special Reunion Edition: Leadership in Action. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.